the fundamental thing that people can do is actually start paying attention to their dreams. Then you can, you know, play around with them. Talk to the people in the dreams. Ask them what they did and let them speak rather than you speak for them. Will you start to get some sort of sense of what's going on in your psyche? once wrote that his clients came to him with disturbing accounts of their dreams. They described dream images of sea level rise, the warming of the planet and extinction of species. The images reflected global environmental disruption of the planet. The analyst told his clients that the dreams spoke to the collective trauma of climate change. In this episode of Think Sustainability, we explore the psychology of climate change. With the help of Carl Jung's analytical psychology, we look at how internal disorder may be hindering efforts to solve external problems. What is holding us back from effective climate action individually and collectively? You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Dream analysis was central to psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung's psychoanalytic method. The Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst lived from 1875 to 1961. He worked closely with perhaps better known Sigmund Freud, but he's famous for his own discovery, analytical psychology. I don't allow myself, for instance, to be, believe a thing just for the sake of believing it. Uh, I, I can't believe it. but. When there are sufficient reasons to, for a certain hypothesis, I shall accept. He suffered a psychotic breakdown in which he talked to the images, visions, dreams and hallucinations that appeared to him and thus developed a new mode of therapy in which he took the unconscious seriously as a creative force. That's Jonathan Marshall. He's a future fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's been busy researching the use of climate technologies in the transition to a sustainable future, while his work as an anthropologist has benefited much from Jung's psychology. Jung preferred to use the term psyche as opposed to the mind. Jung decided to call it the psyche rather than the mind because the mind has very specific connotations in Western philosophy. You know, it's something that's separate from the body. It's rational and all that kind of stuff. So Jung used the term psyche to specify that the mind was not like that. He said it was more imaginative and symbolic. That can be sound, smells, touches, feelings in the body. And again, to emphasize, it doesn't just use rational thought. It uses feelings. It uses sensation. It uses whatever he 
meant by when he talked about intuition. In Jung's definition, the psyche is made up of the ego, the unconscious, and collective forces. The ego is an entity at the centre of consciousness. It's responsible for our identity and personal continuity in time and space. The ego constructs our consciousness and our awareness of the world. I like to think of it as a kind of collections of theories and habits whereby we we relate to the world. Think of the ego as the place in the psyche where we are conscious. The ego is surrounded by unconscious complexes. Our personal unconscious looks like repressed memories, and the collective unconscious refers to an even wider system, which we are not socially aware of. Jung used dream analysis to tap into the unconscious. So in Jungian therapy, you would talk about your today's problems and the look at dreams for possible solutions to those problems, thinking that the unconscious is creative, it's constantly dealing with your problems. Analyzing dreams allows you to understand any information you may have missed in the day-to-day, which Jonathan says is quite a bit. Your unconscious perceptions are much wider than your conscious perceptions, okay? There's huge amounts of data impinging both of us at this moment from air pressures, winds, and so on from the ventilation, stuff that we are filtering out all the time. Okay, but our unconscious is still aware of all this stuff because we can perceive it. And the same is happening in our social life, in our work lives, and so on. So we have an awful lot more information than we are aware of. And part of the reason you pay attention to things like dreams is that they are often telling you about the important information that you have missed, that you have refused to pay attention to. Once we have tapped into our unconscious mind, we have a chance at expanding our conscious one. Part of the the process of therapy, again, is to actually expand the ego's ability to listen to the rest of the world, including your own unconscious processes, so that you can expand your ego and gain more sense of freedom and more sense of the possibilities of action, as well as change your worldview while you're at it. Jonathan and other Jungian analysts believe that the imbalance in the outer world is a reflection of the imbalance of our inner world. That in order to deal with big existential problems like climate change, we must first bring our inner world back into balance. You know, some sort of psychological understanding has to be part of our response to climate change. We are dealing with um, closed tunnel cultural egos that actually are not very good at finding a way out of this because they are trapped by the ideas that have actually generated the problem. Jonathan says that if climate change is a call for us to change our lives, it's also a call for us to change our psyche. He says that individual psychology exists in a wider system of interactions. One individual can't create the levels of damage to the planet we see today, yet the system is composed of individuals making choices. Nearly all of us are engaged in some activities which make the situation worse. 
we buy stuff, you know, we work in places which are using vast amounts of energy. We probably work for companies or governments which are indifferent to the problems. We are all implicated into this, so we all feel guilty about it. Yeah, cultures have blind spots. And this is one of the reasons that, that again, therapy is actually quite useful because you, your problems are similar to lots of other people's problems. You've probably heard the term Anthropocene before. It's used to describe the most recent period in Earth's history when human activity started to have a significant impact on the planet's climate and ecosystems. What the conceptual usefulness of the idea of the Anthropocene is that it is now impossible, or should be impossible, for people to say to have ecological, economic theories which ignore the ecology. It should also mean that social theories have to relate human beings to the actual ground of their being on the planet and their interaction with the ecology. We cannot any longer pretend that that's irrelevant because we are modifying it and the effects of that modification are affecting us. But reversing some of our most environmentally destructive processes requires a radical change in thinking. It is a really hard problem here because not only do we have to change our psychologies, but we also have to change our social organisations, our economies and so on. And that is a big task and it is a task which we apparently have shied away from. Jonathan says that as a collective, we carry and conform to contemporary myths. Common contemporary myths involve stories about free market economics, liberty, scientific method, democracy and progress. These myths have effects on what we do, how we interpret what we do and what we tend to suppress and ignore. The normal thing that people do is try to understand um, crises in terms of the already existing ideas. Okay, so if in fact it is those already existing ideas and habits that are causing the problem, then there's, there's really, there's not, people can't do anything. They're frozen. At best, they can deny that there is a problem or pretend the problem will occur sometime later on. Some of these harmful narratives, to define them simply, are capitalism, the socio-economic order where the idea of progress is vital, and neoliberalism, the defence of corporate power and wealth at the expense of people's lives. One of the problems with neoliberalism is it asserts that the economy is fundamental, right? But economies depend upon ecologies. And if you don't have functional ecologies, you cannot have functional economies. If you think capitalism, developmentalism and growth is the only solution to this problem, you don't have a solution to the problem. It's quite simple because developmentalism, economic growth, ecological destruction and unhindered pollution are the causes of the problem. Okay, unless you are prepared to deal with those, you are not even attempting to deal with the problem. So this is again one reason why we somehow have to change people's views of the world. Okay, any kind, and, and I'm not saying that's easy, but nevertheless people have to recognise what is actually destructive, what the, how the system works and that ecology is actually fundamental. Many of these cultural narratives have served a role in history, like developmentalism, 
which emphasises the intervention of the state economically and socially in developing nations. There's no question, right, that developmentalism has done some really good things for people. It has meant that the majority of people in um, you know, the developed world do not lead lives of desperate poverty. It has been good. But the problem is, again, that it is good up to a point. Once we go past that point, it is no longer good for us. It is engaged in um, destructiveness. The plunder of resources that we need to keep this on up means that we continually keep destroying the ecology of the planet, which causes us problems. Um, you know, we are using up um, the ability of the world to regenerate what it is that we're taking away from it. And that only has the one consequence is that everything will collapse. So developmentalism is a system which worked. It doesn't anymore. And quite literally, if um, people, the majority of the population in India and China lived exactly as we live in Australia, the planet would probably be dead in about 20 years. But challenging cultural myths and narratives is not an easy task. Powerful forces are at play, like the fossil fuel industry, which fervently defends its power, wealth and ways of living in the world. Challenging our ego and own worldview isn't easy either. We need to expand the ego, but expanding the ego also threatens to destabilise the ego. Destabilizing the ego means that we may suffer huge amounts of mental pain. We may know not, not know what to do. We may find that our social life makes no meaning to us. We may find our religion or our science make no meaning. So it's a very, very scary thing. Australians have always been good at not only developing technologies but deploying them. So central to our approach to our policy is technology, not taxes, making sure we bring down the cost of lower emitting technologies. In May this year, the federal government unveiled its technology roadmap. Environmental activists have since criticised the plan for favouring fossil fuel technology like gas, coal and carbon capture and storage, with little emphasis on sources of renewable energy. It throws away any possibility of research in improving renewable energy. As far as I can tell, renewable energy is now considered to be a developed technology that doesn't need subsidy, unlike gas and unlike coal. Right, which strikes me as bizarre. Climate activists are calling for the development of storage solutions that increase reliability on renewables, while at the same time allowing for the retirement of older, emissions-heavy technologies. But replacing the existing harmful system without lowering energy availability is difficult, to say the least. Technology is, is part of our lives, but technology is not inherently good. It's how we use it that makes it good or bad. We can't expect that technology alone will save us, right? New uses of technology may well help, but we have to change a lot more to actually get to a place where we will be stable. And this is, this is part of our problem, is that, we is that people in our society tend to have this division of technology into, you know, saviour, 
and technology as soul destroyer. Right? And and there's no resolution between those that that contrast. So yes, technology will be part of the solution, but it is not the solution itself. Jonathan, who has spent a lot of time researching the transition to renewable energy, says many of our problems occur in the policy room. Without exception was the Australian Senate Committee inquiry into wind turbines of 2014. It technically sought to find out whether there were health problems caused by wind turbines and wind farms. Wind turbine syndrome involves a range of symptoms, such as headaches and nausea, which some people claim arise from living near wind farms. Claims that have largely been silenced by science and health bodies around the world. Half the committee was determined that it would find that there were problems and half the committee was determined that it wouldn't find that there were problems. So um, it got into a mess, more or less, from day one. There was nobody really listening to anybody. It has been found that anxiety over being near wind turbines can cause symptoms on its own. My own impression is that wind farm sickness is psychosomatic, but that doesn't mean it's real, not real, right? People get seriously incommoded by psychosomatic illness and they have to be listened to and they have to be taken seriously. But committee members made several criticisms of the technology beyond health effects. They dismissed wind turbines on the grounds of effects on fauna, aircraft and agriculture. And of course, the um, people who wanted to find problems with wind farms were uh, being encouraged by the Murdoch media to find such problems. Half the members approached policymaking with preconceived and politicised ideas about the world determined to find grounds with which they could criticise renewable technology. The categories of thought we deploy to analyse the situation are always inadequate because, again, because of consciousness being inadequate, we are always limiting what we see. Okay, so there is no possible way that we could always be 100% right. So there's a sense that we actually need to be sceptical about our policies Committee members who favoured wind turbine technology were somewhat misguided too. They largely ignored the needs of the local population when discussing the implementation of wind projects in certain areas. Really, the serious thing that to me came out from the wind farm inquiry was that the companies who installed wind farms very rarely had any decent interaction with the community. Here we have what are often major development projects, and modern wind turbines are huge, enormous things. You can't actually pretend they're not there. The development process often seemed to be a bit like the development process for West Connects. It's kind of, oh, we're having consultation. You guys will do this, and this is what we will do, and we will ignore you. And um, yeah, we don't give a shit, basically. And It didn't surprise me that many people would get really annoyed, anxious and worked up about this. Neighbours were being fragmented by techniques of individual negotiation, with some bound by commercial confidence on matters like profiting off land use. There were social conflicts being generated by the wind farm companies in the communities, right? And that is part of the situation. You can't expect that there will be no social conflicts. And so it revealed what I would consider is 
one of the fundamental paradoxes of renewable development. We are asking people to look after their environment by changing that environment. There is no reason why that can't be done, but it has to be recognised as an issue. Jonathan says that policymakers need to understand that climate change is a social issue. All technologies get caught in social conflicts because often they're used to impose somebody's solution upon other people. Like, you know, I mean, the programs that we use at work, they're somebody else's idea of how we should work rather than our ideas of how we should work. It's trying to get more out of you and more profit for the people who put them in. Technology is not an independent thing. Technology is, as I say, always in social conflicts. That means it's always engaged in ethical conflicts. And you cannot just ignore those things and think that technology will solve it all by itself. One good way of trying to solve some of these problems is to actually work from the bottom up. Like, go to the communities, find out what they think should be done. You know, I mean, they're not, maybe they would like to own their own renewable energy company, right, and build their own wind turbines. How would they go about doing that? How would they make that equitable? Is that possible? Okay, at the moment, we don't do things that way. We have a big corporation comes in and tells everybody what it's going to do. Okay, and so consultation is a good thing. It takes time. This is why often people don't want to do it, because they say there's an emergency. But if it's not done correctly, then often the emergency is not solved, or it creates a new emergency. of conflicting and politicised worldviews, funding and time pressures can result in policy that oversimplifies the issue at hand. I mean, we do this, as, as we said earlier, because it makes things easier, right? It makes things nice and simple. It reduces the fields of research, makes research quicker. Okay, and everybody has pressures to deliver research results really quickly now. If you simplify complexity, it also means you don't have to risk changing your ego structure as much as if you deal with complexity. Okay, so you risk much less disorientation. Okay, and quite often people already know the results they want to get and they're just right to deliver those results. It's not actual research. It's also important policymakers understand the chaos and disorder of the world to reframe their understanding of the world as a complex system. The complex system is a system in which um, the nodes of the system modify each other or modify themselves in response to what the system is doing. We can predict trends in the weather. We know it's going to get hotter as it gets into summer, but nobody is really able to predict the exact weather at a particular place at a certain time, say two weeks in the future, maybe even tomorrow. We can't do that, but we can predict the trends. And one of the big things about complex systems is that they are unpredictable in specific. We cannot tell exactly what will eventuate because of our actions within that system. That also means that any attempt to actually enforce a preservation of order is not going to work. We live in a culture which tends to assert that disorder is bad. Right In our prime religious myth, God 
creates order. And we explain disorder as the work of the devil, the evil thing. Okay, so we want there to be total order. We consider total order to be good and disorder to be bad. Therefore, if we can't punish the disorder, we tend to ignore it. Policymakers need to prepare for unpredictability. We can't ever be sure of how complex systems will respond to our actions in advance. This means that we have to pay attention to what happens after we've done something. And we don't, for instance, just think that because renewable energy is a good thing, there is no problems with renewable energy. There are problems with renewable energy. We have to deal with those problems rather than pretend they don't exist, just as we cannot pretend that we can keep building coal power stations or gas and that that has no effect on things and, in fact, makes things better. Both of these are refusals to engage with the complexities of the world. I suggest we, we have to use an experimental politics. That's a politics in which we propose policies and we propose actions and we are ready to throw them away if they don't work. And we have, say, we appoint a body to actually check whether stuff is working. And they are not people of our political party or our political views. They are, you know, random people or dedicated researchers or whatever. So we can actually tell what is happening. In tackling the climate crisis, we can, as individuals, look inside ourselves to discover what our unconscious is telling us. What information have we missed? Does our current worldview have blind spots? We can take that newfound wisdom and apply it to our everyday decision-making. At the policy table, we can expose ourselves to new ideas and perspectives. We can embrace the world's disorder and find solutions to our biggest problems. I am more or less optimistic that if people start realising all of the sorts of things we've been talking about with complexity and so on, that we will get better at solving problems. We have a chance. The longer we leave doing what we have to do, the worse the chance gets. Whatever happens, humans will almost certainly survive this. Okay, We're extremely good at survival. Whether our society can survive is not so sure. We have to be prepared to collaborate with others, to demonstrate what it is that we want to be, as the saying goes, and to work for things politically and socially and in our local community. Not being worried or not being scared of talking about climate change. We have to stand up to all those people who tell us that we shouldn't be talking about climate change. And they are a powerful body. But we are equally as powerful if we stand together. And that's the great secret of all kind of social movements. We are not individuals in that sort of disparate, splattered way that they would like us to be. We are individuals who become individuals working with other people.
Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.